Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. Now, before we get into the episode, I have some business to get out of the way. I'm sorry. I try to keep my introduction short, but I have a lot of stuff to get through. Okay, first, let me thank a couple of you who have left some really, really awesome reviews. Uh, Don Galev or Don G. Olev, it's all one word on iTunes, I'm not sure. I'm going to say Don Galev, uh, said that I answered some questions that he didn't even know he had. So thank you, Don, for the five-star rating. Uh, I'm also uh, happy to introduce you to some fresh concepts that you weren't aware of and to help you work through some issues you've never considered before. Another review by Chrissy Babs said, quote, awesome stuff, really solid, such a blessing in my life, end quote. Thank you so much, Chrissy. I, I, I really, really appreciate it. I, I'm, I'm stoked that you find the content here helpful, and I hope you and everyone listening keep on tuning in, even when there are some big spans of time between episodes, like a month and a half. So thank you uh, for sticking in. I really, really appreciate it. Now, if any of you would like to share your thoughts and leave a review on iTunes or rate the show, I'd really appreciate it. Also, please consider becoming a sponsor. You can do that by finding us on patreon.com or by following the Become a Sponsor link on the group page, uh, on, the fa- or on the Blogspot page, uh, and following that link. For anyone who sponsors $5 or more uh, on a month or $50 or greater for a one-time donation, I'll do an episode on the question of your choice any question, I'll take a stab, but if you could try, uh, the only constraint is that it'd have to really be one topic that's related to the show, which is probably why you're listening in anyway. So ask me something about 16th century Japanese economics, and it might be a very, very, very short response show, but I'll try. Okay. I also wanted to bring up some really amazing events coming up, both of them happening in March. First is the Sanctification Through Suffering Conference that's put on by our good friends over at Striving for Eternity. Now, some of you may know that I actually have a chronic condition where I basically have a migraine and some pretty severe nerve pain on a daily basis. So I've, I've had what most people would experience as a severe migraine pretty much every day for about nine years now. So this conference on sanctification through suffering is really of such huge importance to me. And I personally am really looking forward to the release of the content since I won't be able to go in person. For more information on this, please stay tuned after this episode where I will play their ad with the information um, for you to to get your tickets and uh, book your travel arrangements. Now, I I honestly really wish I could go, um, but I'm not going to be able to travel across the country. It's being in, I think it's in New Jersey. Um, I'm not going to be able to travel across the country twice in March, which brings me to the second announcement. The Mentionables second annual conference is coming up on March 29th and 30th in Waco, Texas. The Mentionables will be gathering again to present some great 
content. Speakers include Joel Furches, Nick Peters, who I hear may or may not affirm the virgin birth. I guess the jury's out on that. Uh, Mark Lambert and Clinton Wilcox will be there talking on a range of subjects. I'll also be there giving a talk on slavery in the Bible and the ancient Near Eastern context and to debate atheists are and raw on the topic of the historical relationship between Christianity and science. So it should be a fantastic event. So if you've ever had a lifelong dream of visiting Waco, Texas, or you can ignore the fact that it's in Waco, Texas, uh, head on over to thementionables.org or uh, visit the Mentionables group page on Facebook for more information. Buy your tickets in advance to get a little bit of a price break as well. So buy early and buy often. One last thing, I just wanted to thank you all for the positive support and questions and feedback. It really helps me continue to do this and I couldn't do it without you all. And the effort was noticed recently. Some of you may have heard that the Freed Thinker podcast was selected by the Christian podcast community as one of the best podcasts of 2018. And then my episode on discernment ministries entitled Trimming the Fatuous, Discerning the Discerners was selected as their 2018 episode of the year, which I mean, that's just that's a huge, huge honor when I look at some of the other names and the podcasts that I listen to on a weekly basis or monthly basis. And I, I can't even express how humbled and, and honored I am to, uh, to be given some of that recognition, um, again, in, in, in a field of, of people that I admire so, so much. So thank you, everyone, to all of the support. Okay. I, I hate long instructions when I listen to podcasts, so I'm really sorry for that. So let's dive into the episode now, dealing with the epistle to Jude and its canonical inclusion. Enjoy the show. Canonical exclusion or embrace, the use of Enoch in the epistle of Jude. The epistle of Jude has been a source of bewilderment, frustration, and even scorn for many commentators who have attempted to plummet its depths. While its purpose is to combat the false teachers of early Gnosticism and strongly defend the real future of the second coming of Jesus Christ in glory and judgment against false prophets and apostates, the method in which Jude attempts to support that objective appears to many as something questionable at best. Rather than citing our preferred canonical scriptures available to the apostles in the early church, namely the Hebrew Bible, Jude goes outside of the canon to apocalyptic pseudepigraphal books such as the Assumption of Moses, hereafter just Moses, and the Book of Enoch, or hereafter just Enoch and even possibly fashions allusions to the Testament of Naphtali and the Testament of Asher as well. In this, uh, in this episode, I will explore the possible reason for Jude's seeming abandonment of canonical authority, specifically in reference to the use of 1 Enoch in Jude 6 and 14 to 16, 
as well as the common reaction of the commentators concerning if Jude should remain in the canon or if Enoch should be considered and added. The Non-Canonical Writings of Jude As previously stated, Jude quotes or alludes to non-canonical books multiple times throughout his very short epistle. His knowledge of Jewish pseudepigraphal work is comprehensive, and the ease with which he uses them as supports for his line of argumentation is seamless. The question is thus raised, how much should this trouble those of us who hold to the inspiration and inerrancy of the canonical books and make us question the authority of Jude or even of Enoch? In other words, should the fact that he uses sources outside of scripture cause us to question the canonicity of Jude or possibly give us pause and reconsider the non-canonical status of Enoch? First, we should notice that the likelihood that Jude cited from any other extra-canonical extra sources besides Moses and Enoch is possible but unlikely. While some would make claim that his reference in verse 6 to the angel's fall from grace can be attributed to the testament of Naphtali, and that his reference to the defilers in the testament of Asher, it seems clear that other, more suitable interpretations can be made. For instance, in other writings in the New Testament that Jude may have been familiar with, such as Matthew, there are references to fallen angels who are now called demons. It is even more probable, considering Jude's knowledge of Enoch, that if this is not a reference to any New Testament source, that it is yet another reference to Enoch where it speaks about the fall of angels in Enoch 6-9. Regarding the references to defilers, there could be any number of canonical sources for concepts such as not depending on dreams, not defiling the flesh, not rejecting authority, and not blaspheming the heavenly beings. So. To attribute this verse as a reference to any extra-biblical writings seems gratuitous. However, it is not only in verse 14 and 16 our primary concern in this episode in which Jude cites Enoch. While it may be his most verbatim rendering of an Enochian passage, when Jude speaks about the fallen angels in verse 6 being kept in chains, and then again in verse 13 when they are referred to as, quote, wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever, he is also making a strong allusion to the same book. Kiestemacher shows this connection with Enoch to Jude 6 in the following verse comparison. Uh, in Enoch, you have quotes like, uh, the angels have abandoned the high heaven, the holy eternal place in 12.4, where Jude says, and the, angel who, the angels who do not keep their positions of authority but abandon their home, verse 6a. Sorry, my heater just kicked on. That might create some background noise. Uh, Enoch writes in 10.4, bind Azazel hand and foot and throw him into the darkness. Jude, in verse 6b, writes, These have been kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains. Enoch, in 10.6, writes that he may be sent into the fire on the great day of judgment. And in Jude, in verse 6c, writes, For judgment on the great day. In addition to the main allusions in verse 6 and verses 14 to 16 to Enoch, Many commentators have noticed the similarities between Enoch 80 to uh, verses 2 through 8 and Jude 12 to 13. This portion of Enoch deals directly with the same point that Jude is, is making, namely the forthcoming condemnation that will befall the wicked. 
In addition to this, Jude's first, second, and fourth natural images of waterless clouds, fruitless trees, and drifting stars appear in that exact order in Enoch 80. Here, there, are, there even appears to be a textual variant in the Ethiopic manuscript family of Enoch at 80 verses 4 through 5, where Jude's third image is present. So some have suggested that Jude's quadratic imagery was entirely derived from a version of Enoch no longer available to us. In fact, what is odd is that Jude omits Enoch's metaphor in the same section concerning the moon not orbiting during its proper course. Here, Osborne suggests that rather than Jude being familiar with an unknown version of Enoch, that it was the moon image was no longer applicable to his readers, and so Jude simply used an image of the sea from Enoch 67 to 10, just a few chapters earlier. In addition to this, sandwiched between the references above is also a verse strongly indebted to Moses, in which Jude recounts the dispute between the archangel Michael and the devil concerning the body of Moses. While we have no reference to this anywhere in canonical literature, Moses has a rather lengthy passage on it. Thus, Jude was either personally familiar with the text or at very least took this Midrashic interpretation to be true. The issue of canon. The manner of use of these citations is also under much scrutiny by scholars. Uh, Chain and Plummer both argue that we should not assume that just because a New Testament author was inspired, that they somehow are raised above the intellectual level of their time, or that they may receive a tabula rasa respecting their contemporary or normal cultural beliefs. With this in mind, we must remember that we are not in a position to know just how much of the cultural myths and extra-canonical works Jude in specific believed were canonical, non-canonical but authoritative, a category almost completely missing in contemporary Christianity, or otherwise. While we do know that Moses as well as Enoch were highly regarded in the early church, and Enoch was even included into the personal canonical lists of Tertullian and uh, Barnabas, the majority view was that they were not on par with the canon of scripture, even if they were important and informative. We even see from other Jewish groups, such as the Qumran community, that they did not group Enoch with the scriptural scrolls, even though it was clearly a valued document within the community. For other communities who saw the Torah and the Nevi'im as Hebrew scripture, it's unclear if they would have included it within the third category of writing, the Ketuvim, which also included books as such as the Psalms, Proverb, Ecclesiastes, Ruth, Daniel, and Chronicles. Eusebius placed Jude in the category of books that had been spoken against, but nevertheless had wide usage in the church, the Antilegomenon the same category in which he places James, by the way, but would ultimately separate it from the rejected books, or the Notha. Another difficulty in determining exactly what Jude thought of these books is that there was no set, quote, canonical consciousness in Second Temple Judaism, end quote. We do not even see the Jews discussing the canon until nearly the turn of the second century, and even then it was not focused so much on which books should be included, but rather why certain books were considered holy or defiling to the hands. 
The common question concerning which books should be included as a canonical work and what standards should be used to determine them was not a discussion until Christians began to more openly discuss it in the second century with the transfer from scrolls to codices. Thus, questioning the exact viewpoint of Jude that Jude held is seemingly futile, though we can still speak to possible reasons why Jude chose to use this specific passage from Enoch. Jude's use of midrash was not an uncommon practice, and some commentators state that they are surprised at how little the New Testament authors cite outside sources, if even only for illustrative purposes. Though there are several such places as Paul's reference to the Midrash on the rock in the wilderness in 1 Corinthians 10.4, and the use of Philo that is frequent in the book of Hebrews, and the Jewish Haggadah on Exodus 7.11 found in 2 Timothy 3.8 in regards to the magicians who opposed Moses before Pharaoh. In addition to these, we have in Galatians 3.19 and Hebrews 2.2 references to the angel's assistance in giving the law, as well as statements in Acts 7.22, James 5.17, and Hebrews 11.37, which are all possibly drawn from the apocryphal material. We know of Paul's usage of pagan poets in his writings as well, such as his reference to uh, Cleanthes, and Aratus in Acts 17.28, his reference to Menenander in 1 Corinthians 15.33, and his quotation from Epidemides in Titus 2.12. Yet even with all of these in mind, the references to sources outside of the Old Testament canon are, as a percentage of the citations and allusions in the New Testament, strikingly small when compared to other writings of the time possible ways forward. Here we will explore only the use of Enoch in the epistle as Jude alludes to it more than Moses. Several theories have been proposed for how one can affirm orthodox doctrines like inspiration and inerrancy while at the same time not needing to reject Jude or accept Enoch as canon. The main options are a Jude believes Enoch to be canonical and thus Jude is not canonical. B Jude believes Enoch to be canonical, and thus Enoch should be canonical. C. Jude believes Enoch to be authoritative, i.e. an accurate book in part or in whole, but not canonical. And D. Jude does not believe Enoch to be canonical or authoritative, but a useful illustration as a commonly known source for those he is writing to. Firstly, it can be argued that A is simply not, possi uh, not a possibility to the Orthodox believer today post-canonical development. While this would not be an open and shut argument, nor should it be, for the sake of space and because Enoch has abandoned with, was abandoned without much of a struggle early on in church history, this option is simply not on the table for the purpose of this episode. However, B may be a live option and was not without its adherence in the early church. Some early church fathers, such as Clement and Tertullian, adopted the view that both Jude and Enoch were canonical. Barnabas 16.5 introduces its paraphrase of Enoch 1.8 with the normal scriptural formula, for the scripture says, as does ad novatianium, sorry for the butchering of that one, in the third century. In addition, Green tells us that other authors and works like Papias, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Gospel of Peter, Justin Martyr, the Anathenagoras, uh, and all of the other, all refer to the Watchers. 
It's true that what David calls a David's calls a canonical consciousness did not arise until after the time of Jude, and thus the Jews would not have had a clear-cut canon in the same way later Christianity would adopt. We can see differences within the pages of Gospels themselves, with the Sadducees ad adopting only the Torah as completely authoritative, and some scholars have theorized that synagogue lectionaries would, would have been primarily from the Torah, secondarily from the Ketuvim, and that only on certain festivals would the Ketuvim have been read. In addition, it must be accounted for that during the first century, even down to today, there's no universal consensus on what the Old Testament canon ought to be. From Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestants, the collections differ. In fact, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church includes Enoch and Jubilees into the Old Testament canon. This, however, should not give sway to the idea that the canon was, in fact, fluid, but merely that acceptance of it came over time for some of the books. Second, it must be observed that this is not a problem that is unique to Jude, as if Jude is the only canonical book in the New Testament to allude to non-canonical texts. In fact, Kiestemacher notes that Enoch is also responsible for implicitly affecting the writing of Matthew, Luke, Romans, Hebrews, and Revelation, to name a few. Sorry, the heater's back on again. Some scholars argue that 1 Peter 3, 18-22 and the reference to the Christ's proclamation to the spirits and the merger of the Son of Man language with servant theology are both drawn directly from Enoch. We can also say that it seems likely that Jude chose this passage because of the common knowledge of it with the community of concerted Jews to which he was writing. MacArthur states that, quote, to use it because it was familiar, historically valid, and supported his overall thesis, end quote, was a likely reason for his selection of these particular verses. We see then that several options are available to us in understanding why Jude inserts this passage as he does. To start, we cannot rule out the work of the Holy Spirit. It is possible that while the entire book of Enoch may not be inspired, the specific passage within the context of Jude gains that status. We must always remember that just because something is not inspired, it does not mean that it is untrue. Under this option, two viable processes are possible. Either Jude believed that this was an actual prophecy of Enoch that had been preserved through an oral tradition and would have had deep roots into the historical understanding of the Jews, or that the Spirit had actually inspired this specific prophecy within the text of Enoch, either before Jude used it or by virtue of his citation of it. Guthrie appears to adopt a view close to this such that Jude believed this specified prophecy of Enoch to be true, and yet the entire book not inspired. It seems obvious that this is yet another question that will be unable to answer, yet this option seems ad hoc and would be difficult to adopt with very much confidence. However, some versions of this view appear to be David's, uh, David's is a, the last name of a scholar, preferred view, such uh, since he believes that Jude did view Enoch as authoritative and a true prophecy. Van Beek also argues that Jude likely viewed this as a true prophecy and authoritative literature, and that the introductory formula even mirrors other New Testament passages such as Matthew 15, 7 and Mark 7, 6. 
The next option would be that Jude, in fact, did not believe the prophecy was an actual prophecy of Enoch and was only using it in the same manner that a a pastor would cite a secular source in a sermon today, so as to illustrate his point, in the same way that Paul gives secular citations in the verses mentioned above. While Jude seems to use this prophecy as something that he believed to be a real historical event, it is possible that he was only giving credence to possibility because his audience believed it. We know that Enoch was one of the most popular books during this time period among many Jewish groups. There were more copies of Enoch found at Qumran than any other text besides Deuteronomy. Therefore, Jude may have selected Enoch over other texts simply because of the sheer familiarity of the text among the Jewish community. When he credits the prophecy to, Enoch, to quote, Enoch the seventh from Adam, end quote, it could be in the same manner that we may give credit to the words spoken by Huckleberry Finn or Peter Pan if they fit the point we're attempting to prove. This possibility seems unlikely, however. While it is correct that Jude does not give the normal introduction to a canonical work, it is written, or the scriptures say, he does appear to hold that the prophecy is true. Is it possible that Jude, simply by the immediate inspiration of the Holy Spirit, accepted that one statement from Enoch as true? This raises a new set of problems that we'll describe below. However, at this point, while no option seems to be adequate to carry all the weight of the data, nor to resolve peripheral issues that will follow, Mason gives a helpful summary of a way forward. He writes, quote, Numerous church fathers could affirm interpretations and ideas from non-biblical texts as proper and even necessary supplements for understanding scripture, even if ultimately they considered the texts so used to be non-biblical or even corrupted otherwise. The most important consideration, consideration in such cases was whether materials from such texts helped illuminate scripture or advance an orthodox argument. End quote. This may simply be a case of rhetorical strategy that is no longer operative in modern argumentation, yet would have been readily used and accepted during Jude's day, much like the Persher method in the Midrashic literature. Further unresolved issues. The solutions proposed above do not resolve all the issues. In fact, that does not appear to be a t- there does not appear to be a tidy or unified solution that would sweep up all the questions and legitimate concerns regarding Jude's use of Enoch and the other non-canonical works. For example, one might wonder about the impact on the doctrine of inspiration that a late date for the composition of Enoch may hold. If Enoch is, even at its core, before the final redactions that unified all the sections as we have it today, a product of the intertestamental period, then it becomes hard to imagine how to salvage Jude's affirmation that the prophecy mentioned came directly from the historical Enoch, that is, quote, the seventh from Adam. When Jude, would Jude then be affirming a falsehood and thus undermine inerrancy? This has led some to posit a verbal tradition to this specific prophecy that was preserved from the historical Enoch to the composition of this portion of Enoch, which Jude, under the inspiration of the Spirit, affirmed. While this may be possible, it is surely so ad hoc that it's hard to find acceptable. Another problem that this raises is that Jude's citation of the prophecy in Enoch adds nothing new to our understanding of redemptive history. 
In fact, the concept that the Lord will return in judgment, even with the New Testament Christological spin that Jude adds, can be easily found throughout the canon, such as Deuteronomy 33.2, Judges 5.4, Psalm 18.9, Psalm 46.8-9, Psalm 76.9, Psalm 96.13, Isaiah 11.4, Isaiah 9.2, Isaiah 21.4, Isaiah 40.10, Daniel 7.9. I I mean, I I have a a dozen other references uh, all the way throughout the Old Testament, and then even in New Testament uh, passages that he may be familiar with, such as Matthew 25.31. Now, even if we preclude the New Testament texts as being not widely circulated enough in the time of Jude for him to have referenced them, he needed to alter Enoch to make it Christological. Surely he could have done the same thing from a plethora of Old Testament texts. Even his reference to Moses is reminiscent of Zechariah 3, 1-2. So we must ask then, Why did Jude feel the need to reference a non-canonical work in order to make a point that he could have made from within canonical literature? A further dilemma that this raises for the student of Jude is the issue of interpretation. While this, this episode has not thus far been concerned with issues related to hermeneutics, the problem of Jude's assumption of the validity of the interpretation of Genesis 6 given by Enoch, as well as their references to everlasting chains, cannot be ignored. While Judaism largely abandoned the mythical view of Genesis 6 as referring to fallen angels copulating with human women, leading to a race of superhumans, this view only fell out of favor during the mid-late 2nd century CE following R. Simeon B. Yahai, and as such, would have been the dominant view during the time of Jude. Under this view, the watchers, or the angels, were the ones who left their official stations in heaven and fell to earth. This is the view of most of the intertestamental works, such as Jubilee 2.2 and 5.6, the Dead Sea Scrolls, such as 1 Qumran um, uh, H, 1 Qumran M, and and early church fathers like Justin Martyr in his Second Apology 5.2. Should this then place a burden on the Christian who reads Genesis 6 to understand it in accordance with non-canonical intertestamental period interpretation simply because of the one allusion to Enoch given by Jude? If not, then what does that do to our understanding of inerrancy if Jude tacitly affirms that view with his allusion? That remains to be seen. Conclusion As we can see, the usage of extra-canonical writings in the Epistle of Jude can and has caused quite a bit of confusion as to whether or not Jude believed that Enoch was canonical, and thus if the church should as well, or if Jude's own epistle should lose its canonical status. While there may be uh, much debate on whether or not the usage of Enoch affects Jude in that organic of a manner, It seems that there are quite reasonable explanations for why Jude may have used so many extra-canonical writings within his brief epistle, even if there are many questions left unresolved. We should rather look for the benefits of this epistle, as it has been of significant importance to the early church, as well as to the church throughout the ages. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations please feel free to email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or come on by the freedthinker group page on facebook 
Keep an eye out. I'm going to have a special episode coming up uh, with a guest contributor. I'll just leave it there for that. You'll hear uh, a post coming out here, an episode coming out here uh, relatively shortly uh, to give you, to make up for this long time between our last two episodes. With that, thank you for joining us. Stay tuned for an ad about the Sanctification Through Suffering Conference. Good night and God bless. So many Christians struggle with suffering, and yet they do it alone because most of us are too ashamed to let others know that we're struggling. We struggle alone because we think that there's something wrong. As Christians, we shouldn't be struggling at all. We should just have the answers, and yet that's not the case. There's many of us who struggle, whether it be within our marriage, whether it be with our children, whether it be with physical ailments. I want to let you know of a conference coming to Freehold, New Jersey to help with this. It is called the Sanctification Through Suffering Conference. It is going to be held at Chinese American Bible Church in Freehold, New Jersey. You can get all the information and the speakers. The speakers will be Justin Peters, who if you know him, you know he struggles physically. Frank Mullis, Colleen Sharp, and Joe Suazo. And we will have this conference. You can get all the details and register at strivingforeternity.org slash conference dash on dash suffering. Get all the details and I hope to see you there.